The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute in Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed, and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy, with a lineup including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman, and Murray Sabrin. Register now at Mises.org FL23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. Audience numbers for Mises Institute podcasts are going through the roof, and we want to thank our great listeners with a special deal. Per Bilan's primer on Austrian economics, How to Think About the Economy, has become one of the best sellers in the Mises store, and we're giving it away for free to our podcast listeners. This short book is a great refresher for understanding proper economic logic and also a perfect introduction to economics for friends and family. So get your free copy of How to Think About the Economy by visiting Mises.org slash H-A-Pod-Free. That's H-A, like human action, pod-free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. Today, I'm going to be doing a solo episode in the sense that I'm going to be the only one commenting, but I will be joined by the recording of Yaron Brook. So, uh, Yaron Brook recently participated in a Soho Forum debate against Brian Kaplan on the resolution of anarcho-capitalism would definitely be awful for the world, <laughs> some some resolution to that effect. And, and I'm not exaggerating. It really was uh, a very extreme resolution. And what I want to do, so I'm not going to referee the debate per se. I did think that Brian's opening statement was very good. Okay, but what I'm going to do in this episode uh, is just go through and parse much of Aaron Brooks' opening statement because he was making the case. Yeah, he's an objectivist, for those of you who don't know, a big fan of Ayn Rand's viewpoint. And so he would be uh, a minarchist in the, for people who use that term, that that's what he would be. I don't think he actually likes that term himself. But that's how those who use such terminology would classify him. Um, thinks that you know the government is an essential institution that exists to protect individual rights from local criminals and foreign armies and such. Okay, so that's where he's coming from. And so he strongly disagrees with Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism and all of its variants. Okay, so that's what uh, this debate was about, was whether that would be uh, good or bad for society, whether the outcomes would be tolerable or not. And so, again, I don't want to spoil it, so I'm going to go through this, and then you can decide if you want to go click and, and watch the actual debate. But I thought it would be instructive for us here on the Human Action Podcast if I walked through uh, his opening statement and responded. Uh, I think that's enough of a preamble, so why don't we go ahead and get going. So here is the opening clip. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Gene. Uh, and thank you, Brian, for uh, agreeing to do this, uh, this debate. Uh, and, and, and I know it's two against one, so uh, we all know where Gene's sympathies lie. You remember that part of the movie Braveheart where uh, Mel Gibson yells, freedom! What is he yelling? What does that even mean? What are they, what's their conception of freedom back then? Is it the kind of idea we have, I think, in this room, of individual liberty, of individual freedom, of individuals using their mind to pursue their values, free or absence of coercion? Or is it the kind of freedom of my gang over your gang, my bloodline over your bloodline? I want to be ruled by a Scottish king. God forbid I be ruled by a British one. 
That, of course, is the way the world was for almost ever. Gangs against gangs. There was no, you know, with some exceptions here and there, central authorities that didn't emerge out of civil wars, out of anarchy, out of a situation where people were battling each other for policing authority, for power, security agencies of this tribe or that tribe battling each other to see who would rule over everyone else. Freedom as we understand it is a massive intellectual achievement, intellectual, cultural, political achievement, an achievement of ideas. The idea of individual rights, the idea of individual liberty, individual freedom is a consequence of the thinking of philosophers, of thinkers, economists, for generations. Okay, so right out of the chute here, uh, he is committing, I think I'm going to call him Yaron, uh, just because to call him Brooke sounds funny to me. <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking about Brooke Shields or something. Uh, and so that was an actress, for those of you who are under 40. Um, so what he's doing here, and I think this is kind of the fundamental flaw with his whole approach in this debate, among other things, but I think this is the, the fundamental one, is that he is, uh, for one thing, when he's explaining what anarchy would be like in practice, he's actually describing historically what the rise of states was like. When he's talking about gang against gang and, you know, the most powerful group, might makes right and all that sort of thing. Yes, right. If you looked at human history, you'd say, mm-hmm, yes, I see what you've done here. Mm-hmm, yes, okay. And yet he thinks he's showing this is why we must support governments, as the, you know, the political institutions as we know them, because otherwise you'd have this horrible counterfactual that actually is what happened in history. Okay. Let me, maybe I'm realizing as I'm getting into this stuff, provide some terminology. So probably for the purposes of this podcast, I'm not going to be able to help myself. And I'm going to use terms like state and government interchangeably. But I am very open to the idea over the years, people have sometimes emailed me when I've written articles, whether for Mises.org or even going back to LouRockwell.com days when I was in grad school, uh, making the case for anarcho-capitalism. And people have written me to say, Bob, I don't think you're really against government per se, right? Like there could be government in the family. Uh, if you go to a church, you know, there could be elders and things like, you know, you could get kicked out of the church if you're uh, in flagrant violation of some of the codes there and such. And so they were, they were making the point that uh, you shouldn't be going around saying you're against government. You're against the state, especially if you put a capital S on it. Um, you're against, you know, the nation state for sure. Uh, but you know, don't government, if by government you just mean like the rule of law and there's law enforcement and there's ju a judicial system and, you know, you're standard Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism, you're in favor of all that stuff. They're, they're, so um, th I agree with that. And actually in my more formal work, if I'm writing something myself to make a case, I often will uh, try to be very specific and say it's not that I'm against government per se. Okay. Also, because of, um, you know, in Christianity, there's some passages and things about like Jesus Christ establishing a government that won't, will, you know, will stand forever and such. And so it's, it's not that I'm going to have an asterisk and say, well, it's only good, bad if government or if humans do it. So anyway, that's, um, I, I actually like that approach. And so, but as I say, in this, episode of the Human Action Podcast, take things in context, probably if I start saying, according to Yaron, this is what, be, you know, what happened under anarchy, but actually it's what happens under government. Well, then if I talk like that, I mean government as the political institution that claims to have a monopoly within a certain jurisdiction on the lawful use of violence, or it can delegate it to certain, you know, it, it's the decision maker to decide when is the use of violence lawful or not? And it gets to tax, right? So those are two of the attributes that make something a political state as opposed to a giant country club, okay? 
So that's that's the framework. That's where I'm coming from. Um, if you want some background reading, because I'm going to just assume most of the listeners here are familiar with the basic approach of anarcho-capitalism as laid out by people like Rothbard. Uh, if you've never seen that before, I'm not going to explain it from scratch right now. I don't think that is a good use of our time. Instead, in the links to this episode, I will give you some introductory material if you want to just see that explained. The, the basic premise is just if you understand how uh, in a free market economy, the state doesn't need to provide education, that the market could provide education much better. And it doesn't have to be for-profit businesses doing it. It could be philanthropic organizations, you know, charitable things and such. Non, we can even call nonprofits. That's fine. That that's all part of the broader uh, civic realm, and does not, but is not coming from a political coercive institution. All right. So that's um, the sort of thing. So if you get that, and if you understand how, yeah, the roads could be privately produced, and it wouldn't just lead to eighteen car pileups all the time, and so forth, and you start broadening your horizons. The point is many theorists, actually going back more than a century, but uh, particularly with uh, David Friedman and Murray Rothbard and others have been, from, with their different frameworks, have been making the case uh, since the 1970s at least, saying that you could privatize all state services. Anything legitimate that the state does, you can imagine being produced in a voluntary way on the, on the free market. Okay, and that that would be more efficient, more humane, would bring about a better society from just about anybody's perspective. Okay, and that a lot of the alleged horrible things that would happen under anarchy actually are what the state gives us in practice. Okay, so that's the basic idea where we're coming from. And again, if you haven't read that stuff, I encourage you to go do it. But even if you haven't read it this episode, go ahead and listen and maybe just me responding to some of Yaron Brooks' statements. Maybe at first he'll say something you think is obvious, and then I'll unpack it, and maybe you'll say, huh, okay. Not so anyway, that's enough preamble. But what he's doing here, uh, besides, again, the reference to gangs and such that I think is ironic, because, again, to me, that's describing the historical origin of what we now view as the, the main governments around the world, Um is he saying, oh, freedom is this achievement. It's an intellectual accomplishment. And right, I agree with that. But what, what does that prove? Right? So it's he he continually makes this mistake throughout this debate, and then you know, the opening statement that we're going to focus on in this episode, where um, it's because there's this ideal that he wants advanced that he thinks is very important. That's why to him, it therefore follows that there must be this monopoly institution that claims that it alone is the decisive authority in a certain jurisdiction. And on top of that, it gets to say to people, even who are not criminals, according to its own code, gets to say to people, oh, you have to give us a certain amount of your money every time period. And if you don't, then we're going to throw you in a cage, even though you haven't done anything illegal according to our rules, except for the fact that you don't want to fund us. Okay, and so that's a very odd vehicle that you're insisting produces this conception of freedom that you have in mind. Not to mention the fact that it literally contradicts the ideal of freedom that you have in mind. <laughs> but even if it didn't contradict it, just to say that, like, so you could just do it with all kinds of stuff, like, the idea of empirical science, right? Like, you, you know, if you go back thousands of years, uh, humans had all sorts of superstitions and ways that they tried to explain natural phenomena and so forth. But then over time, they became just more rigorous. And gradually, what emerged was a set of practices that we now label science, right? And therefore, every two years, we need to elect a group of physicists from certain regions that conduct all the physical experiments, you know, for those particular jurisdictions. And then every four years, 
um, we have a more important uh, popularity contest where we determine who the most important physicist is going to be for the next four years. And that's the way we ensure the supremacy of this approach to discovering how the natural world works, such as our devotion to science, that that's what we go ahead and implement. Did, doesn't that sound nutty, what I just said? Okay, so by the same token, right, over time, humans refined their notion of what we now call freedom, meaning you know individual liberty, because right? freedom could mean all kinds of things. When we talk about our people free, we don't mean, you know, one thing is you could be talking about a slave market and say, wow, that's very inexpensive. I thought I would have to pay a lot for that slave, right? That's not what we mean if we say people are free. We also don't mean they have the ability to just snap their fingers and be jumping around on Pluto. The fact that you don't have the ability to do that, nobody's going to say, oh, so you're really not free, right? So it, when we talk about people being free, yes, it is a very particular type of thing we mean by that if we're saying it in a political context or an ideological context, right? And it's important. I get it. And so it does not follow that that's why we need to have this machinery of coercion in place that Yaron Brooks says, oh, that's a government and we need it. It does not follow at all. Okay, let's move on. Because to be free, Coercion must be extracted from the equation. Coercion is not something one negotiates. Violence is not something one arbitrates. Violence is something that should be avoided. It should be extracted. Okay, again, the same pattern that I'm going to probably, you're going to get sick of hearing me document this, but I just want to go through and just show how many times he does this, makes this rhetorical move. He says, oh, we need to have violence extracted from you know, coercion sucked out of it. All right, before this enterprise to work. Okay, well then, what you obviously can't have and can't endorse is a political state because by its very nature, it rests on coercion. It says this institution must be the monopolist provider of judicial services in this region. Again, it doesn't mean you know, the state can say, oh, if you're a homeowner and someone breaks into your house and you use your shotgun to kill a guy, that's fine. You're allowed to do that. Okay, but even there, so it's not that the state is claiming to have a monopoly on the lawful use of violence, but it's claiming that it determines when a use of violence has been lawful. Okay? And so... The state is claiming to have a monopoly on that. Okay, well, you can quibble and somebody can argue about what exactly is it that the state's claiming has a monopoly on. I don't want to get in the weeds on that. But clearly, it's claiming some type of supreme authority in some dimension within at least a certain jurisdiction. And again, because if it didn't, it wouldn't be a state. And you'll notice uh, if you go and click through and watch the actual debate, Brian Kaplan, when he gets up, he says, it's, so I'll, I'll just anticipate it a little bit, that he uh, talks about that surely Yarenbrook is, okay. he doesn't want there to be a one world government, right? And then, okay, but once you open the door to a bunch of, of smaller political units covering planet Earth, then he's saying, if Yarenbrook is okay with that, and presumably he is, because probably Yarenbrook's not going to get up there and say we need a one-world government, then Kaplan's point was, how is that? Okay, so that's compatible then with one vision of anarcho-capitalism in which companies buy large tracts of land, and then they set the rules you know, just on the boundaries of what is their land, their property. And then you know people are free to move well, actually, I shouldn't. I should be careful. They're not free to just go onto somebody else's property without the owner's permission. Just like you can't just go into somebody's house if they don't invite you in. But the idea is people would move from place to place based on the policies they prefer, right? Just like restaurants are competing for your dollars. If you live in the United States, uh, when you want to go out to eat, and likewise. You'd have these different regions all privately owned with their different rules and such. 
and people would decide where they want to live. Okay, and and Kaplan's point was that at a high enough level, you know, or a low enough resolution, if that's the way you want to talk about it, that is compatible with Yarn Brook's framework. It's just the way that the rules are determined on each plot of land is different. And the the decision makers, if that's the generic term you want to use, for each plot of land is selected in a way that we, from our libertarian perspective, think is more legitimate than the way uh, a globe full of political states and how they might have elections or have a hereditary monarchy or whatever that we would say, even though, yes, there's a functional sense in which these systems are equivalent, that there's a group of humans who at any given time are kind of making important decisions affecting the inhabitants on those plots of land some systems are more congruent with our a priori notions of libertarian justice. Okay. But again, at a functional level. So Kaplan went through all that. And what I want to say is Yarn Brook just declaring at the outset that, oh yeah, what we need is for there to be no coercion involved. That that's the ideal, at least of what the state tries to achieve. You know, that's, uh, that's like saying we want to have a black hole in order to shine some light on a situation. Like it's no, by its very nature, the state cannot do what Yarnbrook wants it to do. So it may be that a system of um, privately held plots of land where the owners set their rules and whatever, maybe that would lead to outcomes we don't like. Like for example, Maybe the owners, the, the property owners would advertise as, hey, come live here because we promise we will just, uh, we'll, we'll take 1% of your income every year. And we'll, we'll call that like a homeowner's association fee. And so, you know, it's not a tax, right? And, and assuming it was all voluntary on the front end and people decided, yeah, okay. And assuming at the outset, we were basically okay as, as libertarian theorists with the fact that oh, yeah, the people who are making these announcements really are the legitimate owners. They didn't just get a bunch of guns and decide, hey, we're the people running this property, these plot, this plot of land that's giant, okay? But still, they might engage in fraud. The people might move in there, and then once they get settled, then the property owners change the rules on them and say, oh, yeah, even though we signed contracts and everything saying, we were going to take 1% of your income. Turns out, you know what, that uh, we're worried about these foreign uh, aggressors maybe invading or whatever. So we're going to actually bump it up. Now we're going to take 1.7% of your income. And you really don't have a say in it. And maybe that violates the clear letter of what the contracts were when people moved in. That could happen, right? I can't prove to you that that's literally impossible. Surely, yeah, that could happen. But my point is there it's not guaranteed to happen by the very nature of private property and people signing contracts, right? It's conceivable they will adhere to what the contract said, in which case the interactions would continue to be voluntary and consensual, whereas the nature of the state per se rests on coercion, okay? So that's, again, it's just, it's weird that Yarnbrook is, holding that up as a, as a goal to be established to say we're trying to extract violence or coercion out of the system. And that's why we need governments in the sense that he attributes to that, that term when no, the thing he is defining as a government cannot be free of coercion. It rests on coercion. If it didn't, even Yarn Brook would agree it wouldn't be a government in the way he's using that term. Okay, let's move on. And the protection of individual rights necessitates a government. It necessitates some kind of institution that actually serves to extract that coercion from society. An institution that subordinates society to this moral idea of rights. That doesn't just happen. That's not something you negotiate. That is just something that is. So again, here, he's, he's just 
saying incantations and waving his hands and trying to do a magic spell. He's just saying, it, you don't negotiate, it just is. Oh, okay. I mean, w- would we say that about science? Or well, how, how do we ensure the f- progress in mathematics? Is, is there some sort of process of negotiate, like people write proofs and they submit them to journals and then other experts look at it and we decide through community consensus whether that... No, no, no. It just is. And you can say that, but without giving some procedure by which the is gets achieved, it's kind of empty words. And again, too, it it's some at some level I could say, right, sure, whatever it is, this ideal you're holding, like for example, I am for the rule of law. And Yarn Brook might object and say, Well, no, you're not, because you actually uh want market forces to be determined about you know, in terms of the the uh, codification of property rights and you want to have private judges rendering decisions in cases where both parties take their disputes to a particular judge based on his or her reputation and it's not that every few years there's an election in which a case a, ju- a judge is just appointed and then all the crimes of a certain nature get assigned to a particular judge and, and just going through and and you know it's it's in Murphy in your system like the the set of rules that are most profitable bubble up to the top and that's what gets implemented instead of having this rival system. I say, okay, right. And my argument is that that procedure is more likely to produce results that achieve this abstract goal we have in mind. So just to go back to my math example, just because a bunch of people who are called mathematicians, and they might even have degrees after their, you know, PhDs and such after their name and come from, a good pedigree, they might say crazy stuff. They, there, there might be some proof that they say is valid when it really isn't. So just their say-so doesn't make it valid. That's true. But when you say, okay, what's the best way to in- ensure that the things that the practicing community come to embrace and hold up as correct mathematical proofs it's not going to be based on having a popularity contest every four years and having this group of so-called experts that the public votes on when the public doesn't know much about mathematical proofs. And then they go and appoint the right people to go and oversee the development of mathematics to make sure only correct proofs get elevated. And we're going to have the political process kind of ultimately in charge of that. No, that would be crazy. That's not going to work. And just because Yaron Brooks says, no, 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 we can't have mathematical truth being decided through correspondence. And so we know it just is like that's that doesn't help us any. The idea that defense agencies can compete on a, quote, free market for retaliatory force is incoherent. For free market is one from which force has effectively already been banished. What defense agencies are actually trading in isn't force. In the lack of freedom, in the use of its negation. Again, he's just asserting things. So why can't defense agencies negotiate? It would reduce costs. See, so this is the thing. Right now, if there's some international incident, you know, let's say some group of people from Mexico sneaks over the border and robs a bank in Texas, then goes back into Mexico. It we're pretty confident that the Mexican and U S authorities are going to discuss the matter and come to a resolution. It's probably not going to result in the U S sending in the Marines to go take out, uh, you know, battalions of the Mexican army in order to bring these fugitives to justice. That's not going to happen. So how is that possible? It's not because there was a one world government overseeing that. It's just, no, when you got two powerful organizations side by side and there's a dispute, they often recognize that it's not in our interest to go to war with each other over that. And so that logic would apply for defense, private defense agencies or whatever you want to call them, except all the more so. 
because they more directly bear the true economic costs of their activities, more so than a political state does. So the example I like to use is um, when Bill Clinton was president, there was this period where he, the Monica Lewinsky scandal was really heating up. And then he gave the order to fire a bunch of cruise missiles into the sedan because they said, oh, we've got the reports that, that this particular factory is making chemical weapons or something. And it turned out to be, they're like making aspirin. The way we were, the anti-war movement was talking about was, oh yeah, Bill Clinton just bombed an aspirin factory. All right, maybe they were making other pharmaceutical products besides literally just aspirin. But it was, I think, pretty well acknowledged that this cruise missile strike was not valid. That there weren't actually, uh, you know, some terrorist cell in there that was cranking out chemical or biological weapons, which was what the ostensible reason was. Now, at the time, I thought the reason he did that was to get Monica Lewinsky off the front page of the papers. So I can't prove that. Let's say that's true, though, but. Firing cruise missiles is very expensive, but Bill Clinton's decision was not at all influenced by, ooh, I would have to go explain myself to the shareholders at the next quarterly meeting because I'm the head of a corporation and these missiles are part of our inventory. And if I fire them off, well, now we have fewer assets on our corporate balance sheet. And so the shareholders are going to want a reckoning and to say, well, why did you do that? And I'm not going to just want to say, well, it's because uh, there was a sex scandal that was killing me in the polls and I wanted to change the news cycle. That's not going to fly. Okay. So just showing the huge difference in how uh, expenditures affect decision makers when the organization is truly private versus when it's a public entity of which the political officials are mere stewards or caretakers, that that actually changes the way they view the assets under their temporary control. And so since, among other things, open warfare is very costly, other things equal, you would expect adjacent organizations that are privately owned to be more judicious and cautious about engaging in warfare with their neighbors. Let's move on. Now, look, I'm not defending existing governments. Unfortunately, our institutions are being corrupted. They were maybe corrupt from the beginning, or at least had the seeds of that corruption from the beginning. But they certainly have been corrupted, and government has gotten worse over the last hundred and something years, certainly in this country and in parts of Europe. But the fact that institution has been corrupted does not mean we erase it. We reject it. Universities are corrupt. Our healthcare system is corrupt. We don't reject healthcare and reject universities. We go in and fix them. We identify what's wrong. We identify what the problem is. We identify the source of the corruption. And we eradicate the source of the corruption. So government today is corrupt. It's just another gang. So you see this move a lot where Yarnbrook is sitting here telling us all the horrors of anarchy and that's why we need states or governments in his terminology and then just casually admitting no of course nobody's saying governments the governments didn't you know they started out corrupt and they've just gotten worse over time and uh, at this point you know the, the government is just another gang so why is this a ringing endorsement of your approach? At least one could argue, you know, that, that's kind of like a, a common rhetorical move is to say to the anarcho-capitalist theorist, to say, oh, give me an example in history where someone's tried your idea. <laughs> that's what I thought. And okay, fair enough. And we could point to stuff like David Freeman's written stuff on ancient Iceland or medieval Iceland and things like that. And you could certainly make general comparisons about, you know, the benefits of freedom and, oh, look at North versus South Korea, East versus West Germany. And then so you can make clearly make an empirical case that more freedom is better than less freedom and blah, 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 and just say our ideas have not been fully implemented. And you can, you know, do things like that. But we could also flip it 
and say, okay, you're right. There hasn't been a country of 30 million people that's had Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism in effect that we can point to and say, yep, that's exactly the textbook definition of what we're talking about here. That's true. But by the same token, that means then if we ever could get that up and running, maybe it would work. We don't know that it wouldn't work. In contrast, someone who says, oh, we just need to go back to the U.S. Constitution. That would, we say, why would it work this time? You're not going to get a group of uh, political thinkers and statesmen of the caliber of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, right? Who, who's, who's good right now? What, what is it? You know, is Newt Gingrich our era's uh, James Madison? No. I like Jim Jordan. Is he Thomas Jefferson? No. Right? So who? who? And the fact that with those founding fathers, the system did not last and turned into today's system shows they did not build a lasting structure. That the so-called chains of the Constitution turned out not to be so restrictive after all. And so to say, oh, we just need to go back to that, and this time we mean it, well, that's goofy. We know that's not going to work, right? So I could just as well say to Yaron Brook, your ideal of limited government has been shown decisively to not work. How many examples over the course of history do we need to point to to show a people had a government that was relatively small and it just grew over time to become tyrannical? By your own definition, Yaron Brook, Right? It's not that it just happened once. It happened everywhere it's been tried. Right? Like Just like communism has never worked, it's a limited government has never worked ever. And so, yeah, I agree. It would be nice if we had all kinds of working examples of anarcho-capitalism, but if they actually they had started and then got snuffed out, that might be a strike against them. So at least we can say nobody has ever really tried our particular uh, ideas before. Let's move on. And look, anarchy exists today. In every place that government leaves a little room for competing with it, you have anarchy. Government leaves spaces and things that it bans. That's how we get organized crime, cartels, mafias. And yes, it's competition between gangs, between the mafia, the cartels, and the government. Okay, so here I'm going to engage in some actual economic analysis for those of you who are saying, geez, we're about 30, 40 minutes into the episode here. I'm kind of waiting for the economics, Bob. Here you go. The wait has been worth it, I hope. So here, uh, Yarnbrook, he's engaging in what you might call like anarchy in the gaps or something, that kind of a rhetorical move, where you have a system that is undisputably, unequivocally subject to a state. In fact, the very type of state that Yarnbrook is holding up and saying, right now in the present world, this is the best example of what I have in mind, even though it's not living up to my ideals, but this is what I have in mind. And then, because under the jurisdiction and ostensible control and oversight of this benevolent state that's there to make sure the world is free of coercion and to uphold and protect individual rights. The fact that under the operation of that thing, we have pockets of lawlessness. Yaron Brooks going to point to that failure of the state to provide what it said it's going to provide and say, aha, see what anarchy gets you. And that's just nutty. So to, to not jump right now into, uh, literal crimes, like property crimes and, and violence against other people. Let me switch examples for a second just to make sure you understand the pattern. Uh, whenever there was a bad plane crash, by bad I mean like something bad happened and then like they went and did investigations and found out that, oh yeah, there weren't adequate checks uh, you know, for the flight uh, logs and whatever and the maintenance on the planes. And so there'd be calls to increase the FAA's funding for foreign enlisters. That's the Federal Aviation Administration. It's the federal government agency that's in charge of regulating uh, 
commercial air flight in the United States, or yeah, air travel in the United States. Okay, so the you know big passenger jets that people get into to fly from New York to LA and such, the FAA is definitely in charge of that. And if you said, why do we need the FAA? Why don't we just let the free market regulate it? People would say, oh my gosh, can you imagine how unsafe planes would be? You know, these the, the airlines would just, uh, they would stop changing the oil and they would stop doing routine maintenance checks in order to save a few dollars because that's how raw capitalism works. We need the FAA in place to ensure safety. Okay, so like I say, there was a bad plane crash. It was in the Everglades when I was a kid growing up. And there were all sorts of call. They had hearings and blah, blah, blah. And the end result was people were calling for the FAA to get more funding because clearly they were understaffed. They couldn't be, uh, they couldn't do their job right. They didn't have enough funding. And so I made the point that what would it look like for this, to, uh, you know, for what would it have to look like if this were a bad system, right? That you've got two approaches. One is to trust Washington, D.C. based agencies to oversee the commercial airlines. And another approach would be, you know, using more market mechanisms. And so suppose it were the case that federal regulation was not the best way to provide safety in commercial flights. What would that look like? Wouldn't it look like when the FAA was definitely in charge? planes crashing and people going and looking and saying, oh, they didn't do routine maintenance like they should have. Isn't that what it would look like? And yet people would point, point it to that and said, see, this is why we need a strong FAA. And so it's, again, it's like if you didn't have a government regulation, you just had laissez-faire and there was a plane crash, people would point to that and say, oh, that's a failure of the free market. We need regulation from the government. So then we have a bunch of regulation from the government and there's a crash and people say, oh, that's the free market. That's why we need government regulation. So no matter what happens, it's always capitalism's fault. And no matter how badly the regulators are asleep at the wheel and screw up, doesn't matter. It always just proves they need more money from us taken at gunpoint. That, that doesn't make sense. All right. So anyways, like I'm saying here, do not fall for this rhetorical move by which Yarn Brook is going to say, oh, wow, the inner city is very violent. I wouldn't go into those certain neighborhoods that, you know, in a big city, there's certain regions you just know, oh, yeah, after nightfall, you'd be crazy to go walking around there. You're going to get mugged or worse. And he's going to say, and that's anarchy for you. When, no, it's not. The police do not say this area right here is, you know, is, is not territory of, of the Philadelphia Police Department, and we just won't go there, and anything goes in there. That's not what happens, because it, follow me on this. If, it, if that were the case, then a company would find it profitable to go in and provide security services. You know, they could hire people with bulletproof vests and whatever and, uh, you know, go around and provide cover for people. There could be drug sales, right? Like like storefronts could open up and they could put all kinds of bulletproof glass and all these other things, uh, you know, armed guards and whatnot. They have like checkpoints that, you, that it's not just you open the door and you walk in the store, but there's like an airlock kind of system where people from the street come in and then there's a holding room and maybe they have metal detectors or just to make sure people aren't coming in with guns. And they could have all kinds of, you know, drug trafficking there, but in a commercial setting, and that would put out of business all the drug gangs, right? Because you would just go there and, you know, you'd, you'd get it and it'd be high purity. And what, So why don't they do that? You know, people just going and getting cocaine from the local neighborhood store in these neighborhoods that allegedly, oh, yeah, the police don't go there. It's anarchy. There's no government presence there. It's just all, well, the reason is because they would be arrested. The local residents or the, you know, local pastor or something from a, the Baptist church down the street would go on the six o'clock news and say, are you kidding me? They're selling cocaine to our school kids in broad daylight. The mayor needs to do something. And they would go in and they would shut the place down or they would, you know, they would figure out what bank accounts this business is tied to and they would go seize their funds or whatever. So 
no, it is not true that the government literally just says anything goes in this particular region like it's the Hunger Games or something. That's not true. What is true is the police will nominally say, oh, yeah, we have the authority. If we want to, we can come in and arrest people and do whatever we want. We're still the cops. We still have jurisdiction. It's just we choose not to respond to 911 calls coming from that area. So it's the worst of both worlds where they still outlaw their competition. There couldn't be some rival security force that was commercial and you know arose to protect people in those neighborhoods. That no, the government would ultimately shut them down and say, you, you can't do that. What is that? You know, this is like a rival army you're building. You can't do that. But then also not providing the service. It's it's sort of like um if there were people in federal prison and then the warden just decided to stop feeding them and they all starved to death, and then you know, lots of people, including many libertarians, were outraged. Like, what the government just Look at those decisions from this state employee, this warden who's running this federal prison, just murdered a thousand people or whatever. I don't know how many inmates there'd be. And then it would be a weird thing to come back and say, oh, I thought you were a libertarian. So now you want the government to be handing food out to people? I thought you wanted the market. You see how that'd be goofy? It's like, well, no, the market can't work if you're grabbing people and putting them in cages. No, if you're doing that, you have to feed them. Otherwise, you just killed them. Okay, now, if they were a convicted murderer, maybe you're okay with that, but that would be like a judicial death penalty, execution. <laughs> that that wouldn't just be, hey, I'm just doing laissez-faire. You guys, you know, you don't want handouts from the government giving food to people. That's, that's against your principles, isn't it, Murphy? That would be goofy, right? So likewise, the fact that the police and the courts or whatever don't do a good job protecting people from drive-by shootings in bad neighborhoods – that doesn't show this is anarchy. No, what that shows is this is why you shouldn't trust the state to protect you because they won't, particularly if you're poor and from a community that doesn't have a lot of political pull. So go around and look at those poor neighborhoods where there's carjackings and drive-by shootings and things like that all the time and say, yep, this is what happens if you foolishly trust politicians to keep you safe. In contrast, the people even in those poor neighborhoods are walking around with working you know, iPhones, right? They can the McDonald's Happy Meals and whatever. They're still pretty good at those those neighborhoods. It's not like getting a you know a cheeseburger from that McDonald's is way worse. It's going to be full of rat poison or something compared to a cheeseburger from McDonald's in a suburb you know a suburb where it's mostly white people living. No, that's. It's, they're, the food's generally the same. I mean, there's other, you know, certain things, but it's basically the same service. If you stop at a gas station to get gasoline, it's not going to wreck your engine. But if you have to go to a government school in the poor neighborhood, that's going to be terrible compared to the government school in the uh, suburb where there's mostly white kids going there. That's true. So. Government services, and, and this is true. I experienced this firsthand when I lived. Uh, when I first graduated from college, I spent a summer when I was waiting to, to go to NYU in Chicago, and I was broke, and I lived in a very poor neighborhood, and they had rolling blackouts that summer because the you know the demand for electricity to people running their AC and whatever it was a real hot summer. The demand for electricity was higher than the system could supply. And so the solution was to have so-called rolling blackouts. And you know what? Our neighborhood got hit. I don't think the rich neighborhoods got hit. Whatever formula they used, I don't think those people had to turn off their AC um, during the summer. So again, it's what these examples are showing is not, hey, that's anarchy for you. It's showing why the state providing services to people is very selective and not responsive to genuine need. Also, um, the reason, so look at this. What does the mafia specialize in, right? Uh, drugs, gambling, prostitution. What, what's, what's the unique, or sorry, what's the, what's the common thread in all those areas? They're areas that are either literally prohibited or heavily regulated by the state. 
those are the sectors where the mafia goes into and provides those goods and services. Okay, so it it's not it's not that the government uh, has nothing to do with the cocaine trade, and that cocaine you know commerce is unregulated. No, that's the most regulated commodity there is in the United States. The penalties for engaging in commerce in cocaine are extremely high, right? So to look at the violence in that industry and to blame that on a vacuum created by the lack of the state has things upside down. No, the violence is precisely in those areas where the state intervenes the most, if you want to look at like where there's a vacuum stuff, like if you buy something on eBay and the guy doesn't send it to you, then it's probably not worth it for you to try to take him to court or something. You're just out. And yet there's mechanisms in place to protect your money. You know, there's, there's rating systems or whatever. So you can see all oh, this seller have other people used him before and whatnot. All right. So it's certainly not that there's a bunch of drive-by shootings in online book sales or whatever, even though you, know, you might think there would be because, oh, the government doesn't protect that industry. No, that's, that's not there at all. All right. So if you, and this isn't just speculation. In the 1920s in the United States, alcohol was illegal and organized crime, you know, guys like Al Capone thrived in that sector. They were in the alcohol trade, just like today gangs are in the narcotics trade. And then when they legalized it, all of a sudden you can go buy alcohol and you don't have to deal with organized crime. There's not drive-by shootings for you know turf battles over who gets to distribute the whiskey in, on this street corner versus that street corner. That doesn't happen. That would be nutty. Why would anybody shoot somebody over alcohol? But yet they shoot them people over heroin and cocaine. That happens all the time. Not because there's something intrinsic to those products, but because right now there are huge legal penalties involved with the sale of them. And so that's why after the dust settles, when that sort of penalty gets imposed, the only people remaining who are producing in those sectors are criminals and people who don't have other good options, but they have a propensity or a proclivity for violence and they're good at using violence to get their way, how do you monetize that? Well, in our kind of a system, you could become a big-time drug dealer. That's one way to do it. Whereas you can't say, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a big-time beer distributor. And that's how I'm going to use the fact that I'm really good at killing rivals and you know, leaning on people to get them to, to buy my product. No, that, that wouldn't serve you well in a legal, reputable industry full of legitimate business people. That just, you're not going to rise through the ranks and become a CEO because you're so good at intimidating people and occasionally killing them. That's, those skills are not valued there. Okay, so contrary to Yaron Brook, the fact that the mafia is active in certain sectors right now, that's not showing you, and this is what would happen if the government just disappeared altogether. The mafia would take it. No, where the mafia thrives right now is not where the government dares not dip its toe. It's precisely in those areas of human intercourse where the state is most heavily involved in terms of waiting in the wings with big penalties to say, if we catch anybody doing this, we're going to throw you in a cage. Now, what makes it more subtle, nuanced, is this state art, you know, the, its employees are hypocrites, right? The, the cops in major cities are getting paid off, particularly the, the uh, narcotics cops. They're getting paid tons of money from certain drug dealers to not arrest them, but just to arrest their rivals. So, again, maybe Yarn would point to that and, and somehow try to argue, oh, that's, that's anarchy in practice. No, that's the state being hypocritical and corrupt. So you, you can't point to the state's corruption as evidence of the necessity for a state. That doesn't make any sense. Just because state employees are corrupt 
doesn't make the definitive case for anarcho-capitalism, right? You could say, oh, yeah, every human institution is corrupt and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is you can't point to the failings of the state as evidence that the state is good. That doesn't make any sense. And yet Yarnbrook is doing that all over the place in this opening statement. For example, here's a good one. You can always imagine a security force that is protecting, I don't know, the interests of minorities. I don't know, those who hate abortions and want to persecute the doctors who have abortions. I don't know what the position of this audience with regard to copyrights are, but I'm sure there's disagreement. Uh, well, my agency wants to protect copyrights, and Brian's agency doesn't want to protect copyrights. What do we do? Half of a copyright? We negotiate sometimes. Sometimes we do it. What about sex with children or any other horrific thing you can think of? What if there's a specific agency protecting the people who are willing to engage in those activities? And what if they have big guns and you don't want to mess with them because it's too expensive and it's too costly? Now, I don't know how Brian Kaplan didn't. I guess I'm giving some spoilers. Brian never gave an uppercut for that, even though Yaron was sticking his chin out. All right. What he was saying, I'm going to elaborate on what he was saying, but I'm not, you know, making up a point. This was his point was, can you imagine under anarchy why there could be powerful people who engage in pedophilia and then don't get punished by the authorities? Can you imagine a horrible world like that? That's why we want to have institutions like the U.S. government in charge to make sure that if powerful people, you know, had an island somewhere and flew in private jets over there to do things with underage girls and everybody knew about it, that nobody would get punished except the one guy gets caught and then he kills himself while in custody and everybody knows he didn't and everyone just kind of moves out of their lives. That's what would happen under anarchy, but not under... Okay, I guess everyone sees what I'm doing with that. That it's just hilarious to me that he's pointing to something that happened right now under the current system as proof of look how bad things would be if we didn't have this current system in force. And almost perhaps anticipating that, Yarnbrook admits it. Here we go. And there's a sense in which today's political system is more similar to anarchy than it is to proper capitalism. We have pressure groups, gangs, trying to get their way. And yes, you, you know, some of it's money, some of it's votes. But the point is that our rights are not protected. We as individuals, force is not banished from our society. It's competed over by all these pressure groups in our political system, trying to take stuff away from us, trying to take our liberty away from us. We're much closer to anarchy today than we are to true freedom and to true capitalism. Okay, and so now he just literally said one of the arguments here that I've been making is that what Yarnbrook is trying to do here is to say, yeah, look around you. You see how bad the world is right now with states in operation? This is why we need states. Because under anarchy, it would be like this. And we can all see how awful this is. So that's why we need to have the institutions who are in force in force to make sure the world doesn't end up like this, the way it ends up under governments. That, that, <laughs> it would be like, I, I don't know, a vegan taking people around to vegan restaurants and seeing people not smiling and being not having upper body strength or something and saying, this is why we need veganism. Or, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm not even picking on vegans. I'm just saying... It's it's hard to even come up with an analogy for what he's doing here. But again, he's a, he's saying, yeah, what we need is this ideal system of government that protects individual rights. And yes, in practice, and he's saying, because if we had anarchy, it would produce all these, you know, it'd be the rule of might makes right. And there'd just be gang warfare and it'd be corrupt and just pressure groups, you know, just vying for things. There'd be no principles uh, really being upheld. It would just be uh, pressure groups where. And then, now it's true, in the world right now, which is clearly not anarchy, there's governments all over the place, the outcome is not what I, Yaron Brook, am holding up as the ideal. The outcome actually is closer to what I'm saying would happen if we had a totally different system in place. And that's why 
I am claiming, as Yarn Brook, that we need to have governments like we have right now, except I'm going to tweak how they behave so that the governments right now, even though they're producing the outcome that I'm saying anarchy would produce and governments don't produce, uh, I'm just going to come up with a way that the governments end up producing the good result. All right, so now let me just close by mentioning, of course, you could have better states or worse states, right? I would rather live in the United States than under than North Korea. Sure. But when you start going through and looking, you know, to explain why is that, I just want to say, okay, yeah, there's differences in the system. There's differences in the people, cultures, you know, whatever, value systems, who knows, what, what, whatever it is that you think is, is, is the reason or reasons that it's better to live in the United States than in North Korea. And I want to say that in a system that adhered to private property rights and an anarcho-capitalist framework, the same thing would result, that the people in that society could be better or worse, and so things could go better or more poorly, but you got to do apples to apples, right? That um, I can imagine a system of angels living in a limited government framework where things are okay, right? Like, you know, the United States in the 1950s or whatever, and yes, there's, there was more prejudice and such and things like that, so it wasn't a perfect system, but there were many respects in which that was all right, at least domestically, okay, and certainly better than living in the Soviet Union. And you can imagine that, oh yeah, a, a, a group of people under anarchy who are just savages and just like you know Somalia when its state fell. It, there was a, there was a period there where even I was, yep, that that was legitimate anarchy in the sense there was no political authority and power over that region. And I would not want to live there. So that's true. You can do comparisons like that. But guess what? Those same groups of people and those you know tribes and ethnic clans and whatnot, when they had a political institution, right? Because they weren't. It wasn't that Somalia was anarchy for five hundred years. No, the reason it was anarchy was because the previous governmental state system collapsed because it was so corrupt and awful. And so Somalia under anarchy was actually better than Somalia with a state. And so likewise, I would say if you'd start like with the United States and its population and the customs we have and the expectations and how most people go about their lives and they don't expect a truck full of people with machine guns to pull up and start gunning people down. I'm saying you start with the U.S. population and then you get rid of the coercive institution and replace it with voluntary consensual arrangements that would be even better still, I claim. All right, so that's the, the way to make these comparisons. And so, yes, I am sure Yaren Brook could say, oh, I would like, you know, states, instead of doing X, Y, Z, they ought to just do this and respect the constitutions and da, 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 da. And they shouldn't engage in you know, redistribution. They should just protect individuals. I agree with all that. But the question is just how do you keep, limit the state? How, what, what incentives do you put in place so that state officials actually operate like that? Just like I can go ahead and give a list of, oh, under ideal anarcho-capitalism, no defense agency would ever steal from its own clients and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I can say all those things and Yarn Brook's going to laugh at me and say, no. In practice, even if they said that stuff, what's to ensure that they would live up to it? Right, that's a fair question. And so it's a comparative institutional uh, analysis. And I'm going to say, in other contexts, we understand full well that, hey, if you want to produce cars, what's the best framework, what's the best system, if you will, to ensure that high-quality cars get produced at an affordable price, and that cars aren't blown up all the time and people are just driving around. 
I would submit having a competitive industry where people can start car companies, you know, shareholders can come together and start big ones and whatnot. And you just have a basic framework of the rule of law, property rights, and let open competition rip. That's a much better system than if a bunch of central planners in Washington, D.C. decide what make and model and how many of such are going to be made each year. And, you know, that they raise all the funds through taxation and then just hand out cars to people based on their need. That would be an awful system. Can you imagine how bad the cars would be under that kind of a system? And so likewise, when it comes to even providing justice services or military defense, the same logic applies. Now, since we know what it looks like to see a free market in cars, that doesn't seem crazy to us, whereas it's not obvious what would it look like. What do you mean a free market in judicial services? How does it come that? I get it. I'm not saying there wouldn't be more work to be done, but a lot of that work has been done. And if you've never read that stuff, you know, again, check out the links I'll put in the show notes page here. But the point being that it's not enough just to say, oh, this is my ideal. And so what we need is a system that officially recognizes this is the ideal. Oh, okay. That doesn't mean that's going to be achieved, right? The, the leaders of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, they gave a lot of lip service to their ideals, but they didn't live up to them. And that wasn't anarchy. That was a state. So the state can all the time, its officials can say all sorts of nice stuff about what they're doing. And, you know, like some of the most horrific regimes in the 20th century had very noble sounding names as to what they were all about. You know, the People's Republic of kind of stuff. And yet, no, it was not really an organization devoted to the people, was it? Okay, well, that's a good spot to wrap up. Thanks for your attention, folks. Hope you gained something from this. I'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.